Hello and welcome to this episode of The Complete Interpreter, the podcast by me, Sophie Llewellyn-Smith, otherwise known as The Interpreting Coach. Why did I call it The Complete Interpreter? Well, because I think there's more to interpreting than sitting in a booth and switching on the microphone. There's more to you than just your ability to interpret between two languages or, or more if you have a bigger language combination. You are more than just an interpreting or translation machine. And so in this podcast, I like to bring you all things interpreting skills, but also mindset. And sometimes I talk about use of language as well. One day, maybe I'll talk about marketing. That day may yet come. Maybe I should put that on my bucket list. Actually get round to doing an episode on marketing. <laughs> Today, I am talking about mindset. And this episode is about how you can overcome your lizard brain. <laughs> Perhaps you're wondering what that means, and I will explain, explain, explain briefly. Uh, so it's an it's an episode about mindset. It's really an episode about stress management or how you can get yourself out of a threat response. Now, I don't want to go into huge detail about the fight or flight reaction because you've probably heard about it already. And this isn't an episode about biology or about neurophysiology. But maybe I should just mention it briefly. Because I imagine most of you have been in an interpreting situation or in a life situation where you felt your heart racing or your palms starting to get sweaty or your stomach hurt or your, have I already said your heart was racing or you start breathing very quickly and shallowly, shallow, shallowly, is that an adverb? Uh, what else happens? Mm, your focus narrows. Sometimes you can get tunnel vision, etc., etc., etc. And these are mostly the effects of adrenaline. At the same time, cortisol is doing its thing, trying to give you energy to sustain the effort that you would need if you were running away from a mammoth, for example, if you were a caveman. And people often give these examples related to caveman when they talk about the fight or flight response. Because it is your body's response to what it perceives as a threat, it may or may not be a real threat. It might be an external perceived threat or it might be something from inside you. Your brain does not distinguish. It doesn't distinguish between the mammoth, the saber-toothed tiger, your boss giving you a performance review, uh, an insanely difficult Portuguese speaker that you have to interpret, somebody nicking your parking spot when you're trying to park in a hurry to drop your children off to school, the train that is delayed so you're late for work, um, your mother-in-law nagging you on the phone. I could go on with all these external stressful situations. It doesn't distinguish between those things and whether they're going to cause you to die, whether they are a survival threat or not. And it doesn't distinguish between those and things that come from inside you, whether that be because of an illness, so you have a hormone imbalance, or your own thoughts or feelings, for example, your fear of failure, or your perfectionism, or your natural suspiciousness, or your people-pleasing tendencies. These are all things that can lead your mind to think that it is under threat, 
and to respond with what we often call the fight or flight response. Although actually there's a third element, fight, fight or freeze. Now your brain and your hormones are very much involved. Hormones and neurotransmitters. Some of the substances are both hormones and neurotransmitters. And what happens in brief is that if something happens that you perceive as being a threat to you, a threat to your life, to your physical integrity, a threat to your self-image, a threat to um, the approval that you get from other people, all sorts of different threats, then your amygdala, your fear center is triggered. This is a part of your brain which is often described as part of the primitive brain or the lizard brain because it's a part of our brain that evolved earlier than some other parts which I'll talk about in a bit. So the amygdala presses the panic button. It goes, oh my god, threat to life. As I said, the brain's not really good at distinguishing whether it's an existential threat or not. So it just goes, threat, press the panic button, sends a message to another part of the brain, which is the hypothalamus. And that hypothalamus is the interface between your brain and your endocrine system, the system that sends hormones to your body to make parts of your body do certain things, ramp up production of certain substances or tone down production of other substances or what have you. Your hypothalamus then sends more messages to yet more parts of the brain or body, so it goes on. So it sends a message to your nervous system to say, uh, we need to act, fight or flight. Both of these require movement. They require muscular action because if it's flight, then you're going to have to run really fast. And if it's fight, you're going to have to punch somebody in the face or start waving your arms around and gesticulating and shouting. So basically, these things require movement and action. And the sympathetic nervous system sends a message to your adrenal glands, which are located just above your kidneys, and says, we need some adrenaline to get the muscles moving and get some action going. And so adrenaline is released, and adrenaline has all sorts of effects on your body to make you ready to move. It diverts blood from non-essential systems. So for example, it diverts blood from your extremities so you can get cold hands and feet or you can go all pale if you experience a sudden shock. It diverts blood away from your digestive system because digestion is not a priority if you are being chased by a saber-toothed tiger. Uh, it diverts resources away from your reproductive system because you shouldn't be thinking about that if you're about to die or get run over by a car. And instead, it sends more blood rushing through to your muscles and vital organs. It increases the blood pressure so that more blood is pumped through. It uh, dilates your blood vessels. It dilates the bronchioles in your lungs so that you can absorb more oxygen. It dilates your pupils so that you can see better. It releases a bunch of endorphins so that you don't feel pain if you do get into a fight. Meanwhile, your hypothalamus is also sending a message to 
a different part of your body called the pituitary gland. So it sends a message in the form of a hormone to the pituitary gland saying, hey pituitary gland, you need to activate uh, the adrenal glands <laughs> using another hormone called ACTH and tell the adrenal glands to release cortisol. Cortisol is often known as the stress hormone. Its effects are happening at the same time as the effects of adrenaline, but you won't always feel them until a little bit later. And effectively, as I see it, cortisol's main role is to make sure that you have enough energy for the effort that you're going to need in the fight or flight reaction. So it does various things, but the main one is probably to make sure that there is enough glucose circulating in your bloodstream to sustain your effort in sprinting away from your predator that is chasing you. There are various mechanisms for doing this. One of them is to make sure that the small stores of carbohydrates in your liver are converted from glycogen into glucose and then they can circulate in the bloodstream. And another thing that the that cortisol does is to increase insulin resistance and decrease the release of insulin. You might know that insulin is the substance that ensures that when you've consumed sugar, basically, or carbohydrates, that energy can be stored in the cells. So it's as if there's a little door in your cells. The door opens and the molecules of glucose go into the cells. Your muscles can store some of that as glucose, but mostly if you consume more than you need, then that will be stored as fat, actually. So that is what normally happens, but cortisol reduces the release of insulin and also makes the cells more resistant to the effects of insulin so that that little door doesn't open and the glucose can't go into the cells and instead it keeps circulating around in your body and it's available for your muscles to use for movement. So that is all known as the stress cascade and in the end I see that I spoke about it for quite a long time. What's going on with you? You as a conscious individual, what is it that you experience when this happens? You experience all sorts of signs and some of them are physical, some of them are behavioural, some of them are mental if you like. So you may get the racing heartbeat, you might get the sweaty palms, you might also find that you reach for a cigarette or you have a real craving for a drink to calm you down or you lose your appetite or you might have, as I said, psychological effects, mental effects and that is how the stress manifests for you. In emotional terms, what is it that you're feeling? Now that's an interesting question because when you are faced with what you perceive to be a threat, a stressful event, not everybody interprets that as stress in the sense of anxiety or pressure. Sometimes people experience something that they identify or label as stress. For example, some people might feel a pressure on their chest and that is how they know that they are stressed. Or some people might feel that their stomach sinks, their tummy sinks. 
or that they have butterflies in their stomach. And those are things that they recognise as being stress or pressure or anxiety. Or some people might feel that their brain is buzzing in, in an aimless sort of way or that they get a foggy brain. However, there are many emotions or what, what we perceive as being feeling associated with these stressful events that are not things that we always label as stress or pressure or anxiety. For example, if you are faced with a threat, sometimes what you will feel is anger or shame or frustration or disassociation. So maybe you start feeling numb or like, like you don't care or like you're having a bit of an out-of-body experience. Those are all the labels that we give to our feelings or emotions. And let's not forget that those emotions are not just mental constructs. They are not just things that are happening in our mind, thoughts that are happening in our mind, but they are also something physical happening in our body, certain hormones circulating and affecting our body systems. And we interpret that as something that we call anger or frustration or shame or hopelessness, helplessness or whatever it is. Now, that was a really long introduction <laughs> coming to my point, which is about how we can try to overcome our tendency to react on instinct when we're under threat and try to react in a way that is more rational and that taps into the part of our brain which is responsible for decision-making and judgment and seeing things in perspective. That part of our brain is called the prefrontal cortex. It is a more evolved part of our brain, or perhaps we should say it evolved later than the primitive brain. Blood is diverted from that part of our brain when we are in the middle of a fight or flight reaction. So it can be quite difficult to tap into that and try and take a step back, look at things in perspective and react rationally. And the reason this is important is why? Because often when we're under stress, we take poor decisions, we act on impulse, we act irrationally. And also sometimes it's just good to be able to get out of that threat reaction. Because if we're interpreting in the booth, we don't want to be in a state of blind panic. Or if we're driving a car and somebody cuts in in front of us, we don't want to be in a complete panic and swerve and crash into something else. So it's really good to be able to calm ourselves and to use a different system, not the threat system, but what one might call the soothing system, to try to calm ourselves enough to then access the prefrontal cortex and the more rational decision-making part of our brain. How can we do that? Well, there are a number of techniques that you can use. Some of them can be used immediately in that moment when you're stressed. Some of them are best used just before, if you know that you're going into a situation that you perceive as threatening or stressful, then you can apply the precautionary principle and try these things just before.
Okay, I'm going to give you a list in no particular order. The biggest one, the one that is very simple, cheap, quick, and really powerful, is learning to breathe deeply. You may have heard this referred to as box breathing, or patterned breathing, or belly breathing, or diaphragmatic breathing. They all have basically the same effect, which is to reduce your heart rate and reduce your blood pressure. And the good news with the threat response is that all those hormones sloshing around in your bloodstream create a lot of physical symptoms. But if you can change those physical symptoms, then that sort of persuades your brain that you feel calmer. So you're going backwards, if you see what I mean. Instead of saying to yourself, I must not be stressed, I must not be stressed, which doesn't work, what you try and do is reverse the effects of adrenaline and cortisol and then your body goes oh okay well I must be calm now I feel better and so one of the big things that you can try to change is the rapid heart rate if you can bring down your heart rate and your breathing rate that will bring down your blood pressure and then a lot of things will follow and you will feel calmer box breathing is one way of doing that just one example, you might breathe in for four, hold your breath for four, breathe out for four, hold your breath for four. But there are many different patterns that you can try. For example, you might, I don't know, um, breathe in for a count of six, hold your breath for two, breathe out for a count of eight. It doesn't really matter what you do as long as it's comfortable. Personally, I would not be breathing in for 15 and breathing out for 19 because I would no longer be able to breathe at that point. It's good to try to fully empty your lungs. So if you can make the exhale longer than the inhale, so much the better. But it doesn't really matter what the pattern is as long as it's not too quick because you don't want to get into that pattern of breathing from your chest rather fast. On the contrary, you're trying to breathe relatively slowly and calmly. So don't make it two in, two out, two in, two out. Make it relatively slow, relatively long, but not so long that you can't keep it up. Belly breathing, the idea of that is to try to make sure that you're taking a full breath into your whole lungs, the bottom part of your lung, and not just breathing shallowly from the chest and shoulders, raising your shoulders up to your ears, because that can make you feel more panicky. And one way of ensuring that you're taking these full deep breaths is to let your stomach flop out, put a hand on your stomach, breathe, and see if you can feel the movement of your belly going out and in. That was breathing. You can do that when you're stressed, take two or three deep breaths. You can do it just before a stressful situation. You can do it just after some kind of stressful event to try to get back to homeostasis. Something else that works to get you out of the threat response is to establish some kind of connection. And this is because when we connect with another person or several people, including physically, that releases a lot of other substances, other neurotransmitters or hormones, things like serotonin and also oxytocin. Perhaps you've heard of oxytocin, which is a bonding hormone. For example, if you give somebody a long hug, that can absolutely help to calm you down because those hormones and neurotransmitters are counteracting the effects of adrenaline and cortisol. 
hug somebody that you love for a little while or stroke your dog or cat. That will have a similar effect. Something else you can try is a mindfulness practice. Why? Because often when we are in a threat response, that threat has arisen as a result of our ruminations about the past. For example, oh no, I feel guilty about um, what I said to my friend earlier today. Or, uh, oh no, I should never have uh, wasted so much time yesterday uh, answering emails when I had a presentation to finish for work. We either ruminate about the past or we fret about the future. So we're there going, oh, uh, the German delegate is about to speak and it's my turn and what if I mess it up? Or um, we worry about the state of the economy and am I going to be made redundant or is AI going to take over my job or whatever it is. But those things are not real in the present moment. They are not having an impact on you at the present moment. They are thoughts that you're having, not facts. So it can be quite useful to think about what's happening in terms of facts and thoughts. And the fact might simply be, I am sitting in the booth waiting for my turn. Or it might be, I'm sitting in the booth waiting for my turn, the German speaker is coming up next. Those are the facts. All the other stuff about, oh, what if I do it wrong? What if he speaks really quickly? Uh, maybe my booth mate will think I did a rubbish job. All of the other stuff is your interpretation of those facts, your thoughts, your fears that you're projecting. But those things haven't even happened yet. So be in the moment, be present and set all the rest aside for a bit. One of the ways that you can do that is write on a post-it note, just do your job, just interpret, to try and remind you not to get lost in conjecture and thoughts and stories that you're telling yourself, or lost in that judgmental voice that says to you, oh, you missed a sentence, it's all going horribly wrong. And then you're in the death spiral. So to bring yourself back into the present moment, you can try mindfulness practices. There are really quick and simple mindfulness practices where you can just sit there, shut your eyes, and try and connect with your five senses and say to yourself, what can I hear? What can I feel? What can I touch? What can I taste? What can I smell? What can I see? And that will bring you back into your body and into the present moment. My next technique, oh, I can see that I've got ahead of myself because what I've written on my sheet of paper is, can you interpret this event differently? If you're able to, ask yourself the question, what is happening right now and can I interpret it differently? So this is very much about the stories that you tell yourself. No, your interpretation of events, is it fact or is it an opinion? Is it a story you're telling yourself? Are you projecting your own fears? Is it your anxiety talking or your depression or your perfectionism or your people pleasing? Another technique that you can try is to practice self-compassion on yourself. Why? Because compassion is related to all those um, calming and peaceful hormones that are part of the parasympathetic nervous system, the rest and digest system. And if we are 
kind and compassionate to ourselves, then that can dampen the threat response. How can you be self-compassionate? If you feel that you're getting completely wound up and stressed, put one hand on your heart and say to yourself, everybody makes mistakes. This is a human thing to do or something along those lines. You know, I'm experiencing stress at the moment. That is normal. It is a human thing to do. And if you are able to remind yourself that this is normal, that you are not egregiously terrible or bad or worse than anybody else, that these are human reactions and mistakes. If you're able to be compassionate with yourself in that way, then you are more likely to be able to dampen the, the threat response. Another way of doing that or another technique that you can try is to name the emotion. So if you're feeling completely stressed and you can feel some of those physical signs of stress, see if you can name what you're feeling. Some people will be able to do that straight away and go, I feel angry or I feel frustrated or I feel hurt or I feel betrayed. Uh, these are other emotions that are often part of the, the threat reaction. And you'll notice that these are often emotions that we consider to be negative or that we don't like or that we don't want to feel, even though often they're giving us a, a message or they can be channeled in useful and productive ways. So see if you can name that emotion and remind yourself that emotions pass as well and that emotions are partly physically driven by some of the hormones flooding our body. Some people find it difficult to name the emotions straight off because they can't really access what they're feeling and, and understand it and identify it. And if that's you, you might be able to do that more easily if you tap into the thought that you're having and then work back from that thought to the emotion. So maybe the thought is something like, oh, that's not fair. And if that's a thought that you have, then maybe uh, you will be able to deduce that what you're feeling is something like betrayal or hurt. And the final technique that I want to talk about is movement. Thinking back to the fight or flight reaction, what gets you out of fight or flight is completing that cycle. Your body is readying you most of the time to either run or hit someone, right? <laughs> to fight or to flee. And these are things that involve movement. They involve moving your body, uh, possibly intense bursts of movement, moving your muscles. So something that will often get you out of a threat response is movement and it could be something simple like standing up and then just shaking out your body, shaking your arms quite violently or shaking your legs for 30 seconds or a minute. Or I mean you could even just do 30 seconds of jumping jacks. <laughs> These, that's not a technique that's always very practical. If you were in the booth and you suddenly stood up and did 20 jumping jacks, maybe that would look a little bit weird and interfere with your interpreting. So obviously it depends what stressful situation you find yourself in.
Those were some thoughts for how you can overcome your lizard brain and try to tap into the part of your brain that is better at rational decision making and judgment and seeing things in perspective, which is the prefrontal cortex. And I want to finish off just by giving you the example of my daughter, who's the kind of person of whom one would say she wears her heart on her sleeve. If she encounters adversity of some kind or something that seems difficult to her, she will go into panic mode almost immediately. For example, oh, I've just seen that I have loads of homework and it looks really difficult and it's going to take ages. It's going to take me hours and I'm going to be up till really late and then I'll be exhausted. And she goes into panic mode straight away. And however much you say to her, but Alice, uh, it probably won't take that long or you've done part of the work for it already or whatever logical arguments you, you come forward with, she cannot hear them or digest them or put that stressful event in any kind of broader context. First, she has to get out of the the amygdala response, the panic response. And only then can you speak to her rationally and engage the prefrontal cortex reaction. So for her, she first needs to um, go away and do something else, physical, or do some breathing exercises, or whatever it is, some self-soothing technique that she has, before you can start talking rationally. And I think all of us are like that some of the time. And it's particularly noticeable with her and, and with some other people. But I think we're all in that position some of the time. I was speaking to a colleague today who said, when I get stuck in traffic and I can see that I'm going to be late and what a waste of my time, I find it so frustrating that although I know I should be using the time productively, for example, to listen to, the po to a podcast or listen to some music, I just can't do it. I'm too busy going round and round in circles telling myself how really annoying this is. And that's a good example of someone who's stuck in that threat response. And if they found a way to calm down and to soothe themselves and to get into the parasympathetic reaction, then perhaps they would be able to interpret the whole event differently, not interpret it as stressful, and do something productive with the time instead. Right, I hope that's given you some ideas. Do feel free to email me at info at theinterpretingcoach.com if you have other thoughts about how we can get out of that reaction by the amygdala, the fear centre, and the cascade of hormones. There are many others that I could have talked about, um, but some of them are can be difficult to do in the moment. For example, things like laughing or singing or really great things that you can do, but if you're really stressed, either you can't bring yourself to do them or in the booth they would be a bit tricky or they would disturb your booth mate. That was it for today. Please do go to the show notes, find the link to the form that says uh, tell me what to talk about next and fill it in. And if I feel that I have something useful to say, then I would be delighted to record a podcast for you. Speak to you soon.